are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Evocative, quasi-narrative, mercurial. Timothy Roy composes music steeped in imagery and illusion, which often seeks to conjure a sense of time, place, and feeling. His work has been presented nationally and internationally, including performances at Music by an Old Zagreb, June in Buffalo, Bowling Green New Music Festival, Toronto Electroacoustic Symposium, and the International Electroacoustic Music Festival of Chile. He has received honors from several competitions, including first prize in the international competition Pre Desteos. Timothy holds a bachelor's degree in composition from Southern Methodist University and a master's degree in composition from the University of Missouri-Kansas City. He is currently a doctoral student at Rice University Shepherd School of Music, where he serves as the teaching fellow for the Rice Electroacoustic Music Labs and studies with Kurt Stallman and Pierre Jalbert. What's up, Tim? How's it going? It's going, man. I'm just living in your old digs, Houston. We just <laughs> Literally sw- my, my old apartment? I don't think that would so. Be weird. I, don't, I don't think you... No, you're not, here. but that would, yeah. that would be really weird if that you would were. Be, that would be interesting, yeah. Actually, a lot of uh, Rice people live in the same apartment building. Is me. Yeah. Yeah. We were always, um, I mean, we didn't live with, I think maybe one, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Back Um, up. Back up. Uh, I think one other rice person, no, well, it was one other music, like shepherd person lived in our apartment complex, but it was only like a complex of like 20 apartments or something yeah you know really old building it was awesome yeah and uh that was drake anderson um who i'm also gonna have on this podcast because this like you were kind of the first um but i'm kind of going through all of the old uh current and old rem labs assistants oh okay okay yeah drake uh Well, I'm only going back to my own time. So, uh, because when I got there, it was Dan Zychek. And then after, after Dan, it was me. And then, uh, Drake Anderson came next and then Drake didn't, uh, Drake didn't finish. Um, he, Mm -hmm. he went to New York and, you know, became a freelancer and then it's you. So there's, I'm I'm just tracing the REM labs lineage here. Um, but uh, but yeah, you're the you're the first, so we're going backwards. Is there going to be but, a, a a Chapman Welch interview? Maybe. Um, I haven't talked to him about it yet, but yeah. that would be hilarious. I think <laughs> I'm sure first it'd be of a all, good one. I should I should do all of the Rem Labs assistants and then ask about Chapman, and then finally get Chapman on. You yeah. Know? But anyway, uh, let's start off with uh, talking about your piece behind the back. Okay. Which which I know pretty well actually. Right. Um because well, you can you can tell us what the, the situation um <laughs> for writing this piece. Well, um the situation uh for writing the piece. Um that sounds so so severe the situation. Um, well, it was kind of severe. I mean, you remember when we uh we were at ICMC together? When uh, Shihui called me about it, did she already did she already talk to you about she, it before you I left? I think had called me, um, or I called her. She emailed me and the, the asking me to call her, and it was like the day before I left. But um, 
I had just started in the program at Rice. Yeah. And I remember she sent me this email that just said, it was one sentence or something, and it said, like, call me when you have a second. <laughs> or some, yeah, sounds something, like, but it, that sounded, sounds like her. it sounded serious, you know. Um, and so I, I remember just thinking, like, oh, my God, am I, I already did something. I, like, screwed up, you know. Um, and so I called her, and she she said, hey, I've got this um, project I'm putting together where I'm asking um, – former uh rice uh comp graduates and a few current um students to write pieces for the little giant chinese chamber orchestra and we're putting together a concert um in taipei and everyone's going to sort of write for a different uh you know group of players or you know soloists and would you like to write a piece uh and specifically, would you like to write a piece with electronics? And I said, I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, that sounds great. And she told me you were writing a piece. And uh, of course, uh, wait, wait, that was that was before you went to ICMC that she talked to you. Uh, yeah, I think she said that she you hadn't were writing. Talked to me yet? Well, she, I, th- I think she. <laughs> She either said that she was going to get you to write a piece, or she was going to talk to you about it, or but your de- your name was definitely mentioned. Um, she I think- definitely strong strong armed me into it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, mean, I I I wanted to write the piece, but she she has that she has that way about her. You know, whenever I have described Shihui, uh, because we're, we're talking about Shihui Chen at Rice, um, whenever I have described her to anyone. I always describe her. She kind of has this like motherly feel about her in a way. Yeah. I mean, at least to me, um, I know that, uh, for instance, like I don't think Steve Bachicha and her have the same relationship that I have with her, but in the same regard, like she kind of sometimes just comes to me and is like, Rob, you need to do this. You need, you really need to do this. You should do this. <laughs> Right. I'm like, oh, okay, okay I'll, I'll do it, you know? But yeah, she's very supportive and, uh, you know, helpful and generous with her, her time and, and yeah, you know, she and what Kurt. she does for all of us. So, yeah, and Kurt, too, of course. Yeah, so you were going to write uh, something for the ensemble with electronics. Uh, then she contacted me, and then Kurt was also writing with electronics. And right. she... And uh, Chris Walzak, who all the way back, uh, episode nine, actually, when Chris was in China, uh, he's the only person I've ever actually been able to, like, have sitting across from me, you know, in real life <laughs> right. when doing these. Everyone else yeah. is just on Skype. But but uh, Chris was here and he he was part of that project. And also uh, Shane Mons. Um, and th- the yes. three of them were writing uh, just purely acoustic pieces. And the the little giant orchestra is made up of traditional Chinese instruments. So you, I, my piece um, was for Ditsa, which is a Chinese uh, bamboo flute, and uh, Sheng, which is a mouth organ. It's uh, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's it's like a uh, well, it looks like an organ. Yeah, it's it's like a harmonica with with pipes. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. A harmonica with pipes. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. And then you were writing for the pipa. So yes. I wanted to ask you, you know, what was your approach in writing for that instrument? What kind of research did you do? Um, I should start back with when I hung up the phone on Shaway, um, which was a moment of sheer panic. Me and thinking, you were like, oh, what, what did I just agree to? You know, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this instrument, how I'm going to figure out how to write for this instrument. I knew that I'd, I'd come up with something, but I was, you know, I was worried about it. Um, and she provided everybody with, uh, I don't know if she sent you these materials, but she, she provided Shane and I with, um, scores and some resources and, um, and that was, that was somewhat helpful. Um, I went online and listened to a number of things, but most of what I could find was, was sort of like, uh, traditional Chinese pieces. Yeah. And that was helpful to a certain extent, but, you know, I, I was, hell-bent on writing something that didn't sound Chinese, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I, since I studied with uh, Chen Yi at UMKC, I emailed her and I just said, hey, um, I've got this project. Could you send me some scores of yours and, you know, whatever you can think of that might help? And so uh, just like her, she responded in like five minutes <laughs> you can email her at, you know, three thirty AM and she's going to respond and, and, you know, immediately. I swear that she never, she never sleeps. Well, she's always, I've never met her, but she's always been described to me as just a ball of energy. And she's a total ball of energy. Yeah. She's yeah. One of the, the most, uh, kind and generous and supportive, uh, teachers I've ever had and she's just like go 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 all the time you know yeah but she sent me um a score for a, a chamber work of hers called Ning which is a really fantastic piece and there's videos online um and you know I just I just read what I could about the instrument and something that I found was really interesting was that it's not originally even a Chinese instrument, that it, um, mm -hmm. it's an instrument that uh, evolved over hundreds of years out of basically lutes that were imported from uh, the Middle East. And so, you know, some of what I was reading was talking about how the, the, it's ironic that the pipa is it's sort of considered um, the most iconic instrument of uh, traditional Chinese music, but yet it didn't really originate from China. Yeah, directly. I mean, I'll actually, quite a few of the instruments um, in that are considered traditional Chinese instruments, you know, they they kind of come from all over. That's actually a thing that is very prominent in Chinese culture. It's you know, you 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 trace something that it's very that, that is very iconic you trace it back and you realize that mm, that came from japan or mm. that came from here or there you know so in in the instruments especially 
um, that's that's something that I you know just by virtue of being over here that I have I've learned you know but in a certain way it's like China takes China takes something from a lot of different places but then makes it Chinese mm -hmm. yeah you know? and definitely that's what happened to this instrument um, I was I the most interesting thing that I read that really sort of got my mind going um, and really it's funny because uh, I don't know if you remember but she emailed uh, Shui that is emailed us at a, at a certain point and she said uh, it was really early it was it was like long before our pieces were gonna have to be done and she said <laughs> I need a title for your piece you need to send it today by 5 p.m. do you remember that <laughs> I just, I literally just talked about this with um, a composer, Sarah Corey, because we were talking about titles oh. and how they're so hard. Yeah, I went and, to school with Sarah. And I brought that up. I, I, oh, you went to school with Sarah? Yeah, at SMU. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, All she right. was a year uh, behind me. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, um, yeah, we talked about that, that story about how Shuhei was just like, I need a title. They're making the program. I need a title. Give me a title. <laughs> right. And we're like, I haven't even started. I, I haven't, haven't even started thinking about, about it yet. This yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't so, care. I need a title. So I said, okay, I need to, I need to come up with something immediately. So I, I started digging online just to try to come up with some bit of uh, something that could serve as extra musical influence. And I was reading this interesting article about. Um, how the uh, Chinese have this phrase that they use to play pipa behind the back. Mm -hmm. And uh, the phrase is, it's based on the fact that there are these murals in the Mogao caves in, uh, I think, the Dunhuang province. Yeah, these cave murals that depict women playing pipa and various instruments and uh, it sort of looks like a you know a ceremonial uh, situation or a social gathering and many of them are seemingly floating in the air they're doing all these acrobatic moves and some of them are actually playing the instrument um, slung behind their backs mm -hmm. and so um, this phrase to play people behind the back is used apparently in an equivalent way that we might say to think outside the box. So mm, it, okay, it represents yeah. a sort of uh, innovation, uh, virtuosity of uh, thought. And so that, that sort of got me thinking. And, you know, the piece, of course, ended up being called Behind the Back. And, you know, I was really thinking about uh, the literal virtuosity of the instrument and um, what it takes to play such an instrument. But then also this idea of playing behind the back, it was, it was something that uh, conjured different ideas for me. Um, I did think of Jimi Hendrix because it's like yeah, that's what that's what I was immediately gonna you, ask. You you can't yeah, I I couldn't get away from thinking about that, and there aren't any direct references to Hendrix, but there are places where I use a uh, bandpass filter that that you know moves to to create kind of like a 
you know, a wah type effect. Right. Um, yeah. In the electronics, but. Well, actually, when when the, I, I think I know where you're talking about, um, and actually, when we were rehearsing that, Kurt, I think called that your your Led Zeppelin part. <laughs> yeah, probably. There's like, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, something yeah. Uh, like a uh, wonton song or, or something. There's there's but, definitely um, yeah, there's definitely some sharp nine stuff. That 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 was another, I guess. Um, subtle reference to to Hendrix or you know seventies rockers, sixties uh, seventies rockers, um, with these like sharp nine dominant harmonies that happen in right. places. Yeah. But in the electronics, when that happens, you also have uh, sounds of Chinese opera gongs going, and those have that wow kind of yeah, exactly. kind of sound. So I was wondering if that the the you know, and that's modeled. I, I was wondering if you modeled your electronics after a Chinese opera gong, but it sounds like you were kind of thinking of it like a wah-wah pedal. Well, um, the answer is yes. So Good I, answer. Yeah, I love it. No, I mean, I, I went and I, I had recorded some percussion instruments with Brandon Bell and Craig Halshelt, who are both... Uh, Brandon, Craig. Brandon, doctoral students here at, at Shepherd. And um, we just sort of hung out at their their studio in the Heights and drank beer and recorded different instruments for this other do piece that I'm writing for them. Do they share a studio with Luke Hubley, too? Uh, I thought it was just them, but um, I think it's is it just like, the two of them. It, well, is it... Um, is the building kind of like an old elementary school? It is, yeah, Mecca. Yeah, yeah, they they share with Luke. And uh, when I was back in last January for rehearsals, that's where we rehearsed with Luke. <laughs> I walked into the rehearsal and Luke's like, you're up, want a beer? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, they, like, have the, sure. they have the mini fridge. Um, yeah, it's a pretty They've sweet got a great setup. setup. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it really is. But um, yeah, we were recording stuff for this other piece that um, I'm writing for them um still writing for them need to get back to at some point but (laughs) yeah they always two percussion and electronics yeah yeah i know we have this we have this thing you know going on between us as to you know which one will be more awesome although is yours done it's getting there yeah okay (laughs) i think yours is going to be more awesome um, because uh, mine is mine is all using handheld instruments, you know. So it's yeah, it's not going to be big and bombastic, you know. I'm yeah. not going to have drums or anything. It's going to be like kind of uh, meticulous, mm-hmm. I guess, is a word that could I don't know, but it'll be cool. Yeah, mine's. But, I mean, mine's going to be a little nuts, and it's for the Terrell Sky Space. So that's cool. You know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, anyway, Brandon and Craig had these uh, Chinese opera gongs. One was pitched D and the other was A, I think. And when you strike them, they have this uh, this pitch envelope, this upward pitch envelope, uh, to where the pitch just sort of like gradually rises, like, like yeah, yeah. And it seemed to me that um, the harder you struck them, the longer it took for that envelope to um, evolve. 
Uh-huh. And so um, I basically I just had them strike these differently pitched gongs at different um, dynamic levels, and I ended up you know using them in the piece. Um, but I was thinking about how I could connect that sound to the pipa because they both have a sort of nasal timbre, and um, I was using a lot of bending in the piece mm-hmm. um, yeah. with the instrument, um, quite a bit of bending. And so um, there is a section where those gongs are really prominent, and then there are these low notes that are their uh, cello pizzicati notes, but you can't really tell because they're so heavily processed. But Yeah, um, couldn't tell at all. Yeah, but they just sort of sound like, you know, 70s funk bass or something. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, my wife uh, calls this one section the uh, section where aliens are dancing is what she calls <laughs> how she refers to it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Sarah. I yeah. That. I mean, this other piece I'm writing for Brandon and Craig has... Uh, has this uh, moment where I, I'm using like th- this field recording of uh, ducks and geese, and she calls it. Uh, it also has like synthesizers going on, and so she calls it space ducks. So that piece is space ducks, <laughs> and this piece is the uh, the alien dance party. You know. So when electronics are being used, she just assumes it's in space. You know, I mean, I guess I'll have to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, the electronics in particular, I thought, you know, just, just knowing that you are a student of, uh, James Moberly, um, I thought the electronics had a kind of Moberly influence. Yeah, that maybe through osmosis. I mean, that's, that's, that's more than, I guess it's more than just you being his, his student. Like there was, um, around the two thirds area when you mm-hmm. really start kind of cooking rhythmically right um it kind of it there was something about it and maybe it's the the sounds maybe mm-hmm. i don't yeah. know what what were you doing in terms of uh where you were getting your your sounds for the electron i mean we already talked about the gongs and the cello right pizzicato but a but lot there, of there's the, a lot more in there the pitched material um was mostly drawn from me playing electric guitar and processing mm. it heavily. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. And there was some synthesis as well. So those two things sort of combined. But mm-hmm. there was no sampling of, of like a pipa or anything like yeah. that. Um, and then... Uh, how, is the, how is the pipa tuned? The um, pipa is, is tuned it... in a traditional way. It's um, tuned... Uh, a d e a so uh the low a is actually the um bottom space of the bass clef uh-huh and then um d in the middle line of the bass clef and then e a whole step above that um and then that's a. so weird yeah it's very it's very weird and it was um it was hard to figure out what I could do to avoid having that sound. You yeah. know, it's kind of like if you wanted to write for classical guitar and guitar is such an idiomatic instrument uh-huh. and 
um, I don't know. I just feel like you hear the tuning. Yeah. To a you, you, you end up hearing, but I mean, just like think, trying to figure out like, okay, how did you, did you like tune your guitar like that? So you could kind of figure out, you know, finger placement and stuff. I did. I took out, um, I took out my, uh, Les Paul that's mostly been just sitting under my bed because I don't have time to play it. And yeah. I used that as, um, a means of finding sonorities that were somewhat comfortable. Were you thinking about this like a pipa or were you thinking about it like a guitar? I was thinking about it like a pipa. Uh-huh. So, um, I did the absolute best I could to not treat the instrument like a guitar. Um, yeah. because there are so many, uh, playing techniques that are unique to the instrument. And so, um, and there are all these symbols that you have to use in connection with these techniques. Um, and so I studied that a lot and just figured out what I could do with those techniques. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was mostly concerned with trying to find interesting sonorities, um, and, you know, chords that, uh, didn't sound, I don't know, didn't sound like the the traditional Chinese music that I've been listening to. I wanted to do something different. Thank you. 
It's unfortunate you you weren't able to come to Taiwan to hear the um, to hear the performance because another one of the kind of activities that we did was there was a 
I guess a project that Little Giant was doing with uh, some student composers mm -hmm. in Taiwan, China. I think there were some Korean composers as well. Um, and they brought these students and they did a reading session with Little Giant. Right. And of course, no electronics, um, just, just all acoustic pieces. And Chris and Shane and I sat and listened to all these and, um, you know, just in the audience and then Shihui and some of the other um, established Taiwanese composers were, you know, giving feedback, I mm -hmm. guess, to the students. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I didn't really understand if they were being judged or if there was a prize or, you know, mm. it, it seemed like it was just an opportunity to work with Little Giant. But yeah. Chris and I sat there and I think of the 30, you know, there were, I think there were 30 pieces. I can't really remember, but we just, at a certain point, we just commented to each other, like, I can't tell these apart. You know, mm -hmm. every single piece is using this gesture for the pipa, this gesture for the jung, this gesture for the shung, this, you know, it's like, right. it was just everyone everyone got the the book of like chinese musical gestures yeah and it's like oh this is what you do so so that's why in your piece i'm i'm like i i appreciate the fact that it doesn't sound like a pipa piece that i've right. heard before yeah you know? so, and i've heard quite a few of them just living over here right i mean so that was something i wanted to um mention too is that i spent a lot of time thinking about it because you know, I ha there's, you've got this catch-22. I wanted to write a piece that, um, you know, acknowledged what the pipa is because it's, right. it's not just an instrument. It's, it's really a signifier of a culture. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to just totally ignore what, you know, that instrument represents. And so... Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to write something that betrays the fact that I'm an American composer writing for this instrument. Yeah. And so it's it's hard. And part of what makes it hard is that, you know, there are all these um, licks that are you hear all the time for the pipa. And right. one of the reasons you hear it all the time is they're very idiomatic. Well, you want to write idiomatically for the instrument but you want to avoid the licks that keep cropping up over and over again. Yeah. But it's hard to avoid exactly. them because they're so idiomatic. So <laughs> Exactly. You know, trying to come up with just what notes to put on the page without sounding like everything else was was hard. But then you get Yeah, into I mean I, th I think there's writing for instruments from a culture for which you do not belong. Mm -hmm. It's always a really tricky situation, I feel like. And, I, you know, I've done, I did the piece for the Chinese instruments. I've done a piece for an African xylophone. I've done mm. a steel pan, you know, and electronics. You know, I've, I haven't been afraid to get into those situations, but mm -hmm. I feel like those pieces always give me the most amount of grief and stress because, right. because there is this extra element that mm -hmm. you you know, I would, the, the way I just try to get around it is I, I never try to use any original content from that culture mm -hmm. 
And and Shihui always Shihui and Kurt I I've talked to Shihui and Kurt about this, and they always said, well, just treat it like a sound source, you know, just treat it as an instrument, you know, devoid mm-hmm. of the cultural associations. And you know, as much as I as I want to get to that place, I think it's it's very difficult to get to that place mentally, right. you know, just as <laughs> a a white male composer from America, you know, right. it's hard to. It's hard to just say, yeah. well, no, I'm just I'm just treating it as a as a sound. Right. You know, so Edward Said would say that you're colonizing the instrument. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like you're right. You want to be idiomatic. You want to learn as much about it as much as possible. But at the same time, you know, when I was writing the piece for the African xylophone, there are tons of melodies, but it's like mm-hmm. I'm not going to use those. Right. Like, you know, at yeah. all. I want to do something completely different while still yeah. respecting. It's it's really tricky. It is tough. Yeah. It's it's tricky, but at the same time, it's like it's a good problem to have, you know, to immerse your to try and get into that instrument so yeah. deeply and think about how I can as a composer, how I can do something with this instrument that is true to like respects it respects its culture but also is true to my own compositional voice absolutely absolutely yeah um so uh this this was performed in tai in taipei by the chinese uh, uh by the little giant chinese chamber orchestra and uh what was the name of the performer that that premiered this su yun han yeah she was she was awesome to work with, by the way, because uh, because you couldn't um, you were unable to attend. I was uh, running your electronics for you and yep. you had rehearsals with her. She was great. I have to, I really have to say I was Skyping so. with you guys at like, you know, two thirty in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> during during your rehearsals. Um, Wake up, there, Tim. It's your piece was, now. <laughs> there was that cat that just kept. Oh yeah, the, I was there. Just one cat in the rehearsal space. Oh, I don't know. You were there. Two? I can't remember. I just know that we were. There were cats all the time. <laughs> I just would hear. You know, I'd hear her warming up, and you were setting up the electronics, and then I'd start hearing, you know, meowing. Meow. Thinking, what is going on? You could have used that in place of your opera. Yeah, I thought meow. maybe you, you had like a soundboard that was just cat meows. <laughs> <laughs> that you were gonna use. you know tim i can't really figure out your max patch i'm just so gonna I'm, go with this cat synthesizer I'm that i have go with this cat yeah <laughs> uh. awesome let's talk about chatterbox okay you recently got some good news about chatterbox i did i did uh i entered the piece into a competition hosted by frame dance productions um, which is a local dance troupe here in Houston that you know something about. And we've had, about. well, yeah, we've, <laughs> well, I know a lot about frame dance. Yes. And then our listeners should know something because I believe it was episode 15. Um, we had Lydia Hans, the um, the founder oh, that's and right. uh, choreographer of frame dance on the podcast to talk about you did. just, you know, creativity and, and dance and her working with music and, when we were talking, the uh, the competition had just opened, mm. and uh, you know, on the podcast, we were trying to get you know people to 
I think we recorded, but I didn't include it, a uh, a segment about <laughs> the pet peeves of of judging this thing, because oh. um, just just in terms of like listening to people's submissions where it's you know they're sending in MIDI or or whatever, and mm-hmm. as we, I started helping her judge it in 2014 because I. I was the 2013 winner, and then mm-hmm. from 2014 until now, I've been I've been helping her with the submission right, process, yeah. being a judge, and um, I've just I you know I've built in my own pet peeves into her like call, so <laughs> it must be because I'm over here and she uses submittable, yeah. and right. submittable will only play MP3s on the website. Yeah. If you submitted a wave, I have to download it, and with right. the internet over here, it's just like. I don't want to download anything extra. So I know. It's like, must be MP3, cannot be well, MIDI, must be blah, 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 blah. blah let so. me just say for all the for all your listeners right now that Rob is a super nice guy. We always have a ton of fun. <laughs> but he is ruthless. Is going. He is ruthless with um, these types of submissions. If, if you're given instructions... And I mean, th- this is good advice for for submitting for anything. I mean, I feel I feel like you should do this anyway. But if you submit to something that that Rob is a panelist on, and you do not follow the instructions, you're screwed. You know, you're because um, I know for the what the Suzhou Commission, uh, you had yeah. very strict instructions about like use this site, do not use this site. If you use yeah. this site, you know. That's it. You're and the naming convention had to be correct. And right. Like. Yeah. But I mean, I understand it. I understand that that there's not somebody just you know making up uh, you know BS rules. It's not like uh, you know even it's Van all for Halen, a purpose. Van Halen had a reason for their brown M and M's, right? You know, there no no brown M and M's rule. There was a reason for it. You know, so you just gotta remember these things. <laughs> yeah, I mean when you're when you're doing one of these things and it's like you who is this with with the Chose Award this year, I did end up having a student kind of download and collate mm-hmm. and things like that. I last right. the first year I did it, and the first year we had three hundred and fifty submissions. Wow, yeah. And the majority of them, like the the way we did it, it we split it up between five people, but I split it up it was essentially between the five people I did 50% of the mm-hmm. submissions and the right. other yeah, four people. Lot. Yeah, it was because I, I split it up before the very last minute. Didn't mm-hmm. realize that I would get a, like 160 submissions in the last, you know, four hours or something, <laughs> you know, it right. was insane. And here they come. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that was, right. that was an oversight on my part, but yeah. But yeah, like, you know, from from the standpoint of the the other judges that mm-hmm. were a part of this uh competition for frame dance, I mean, we we loved this piece, Chatterbox. I mean, I love a good quiet piece with mm-hmm. short, dry gestures. I think that <laughs> I mean, there's there's something about it. I've been getting into it a lot recently, mostly because and I've I've talked about this before, but mostly because of my you know just being involved with electronics mm-hmm. all you hear is reverb all day long it's only reverb you only right. hear reverb right and you know it's and in a certain way that 
has transferred into my listening in terms of just acoustic pieces. It's like, mm-hmm. I love a good, just like, pop, you know, that's a, that's a great sound. And, it, and right. no one does it. And just silence. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know, this ensemble that you wrote for is flute, doubling pick, uh, percussion, violin, and cello. And yes. that ensemble almost kind of necessitates that dryness about it. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. Um, I'm trying to bring myself back to when I was writing the piece. It was it was written for Cadillac Moon Ensemble, mm-hmm. which is out of New York, and they're great. And they came to Rice to do a concert and do a reading session of uh, student pieces. And so I wrote this piece specifically for that opportunity. Yeah, I guess I was I was thinking about you know issues of ensemble and blending and uh what am I going to do with the flute and the percussion and um particularly the percussion because I didn't want to just have them banging away and drowning everybody out. And it gets <laughs> right. a little bit wild at a certain point but um you know, I was interested in in some delicate sorts of sounds too. So, yeah, I mean, the percussion you're using is marimba, uh, bongos, congas, triangle, and do you have some wood blocks or something in there? There is a uh, one high wood block, and then there is also at the end of the piece a uh, a whip. So basically, other than the triangle, and the way you tra- you play the triangle is always kind of quiet. Right. But other than the triangle, all short, dry sounds. No metal, no no resonance. Right. That's so right. were you were you kind of uh you know, you wrote this for an opportunity and this is a ensemble that's traveling in. So were you mm-hmm. kind of limited in terms of what you could write for percussion wise? Well, they borrowed instruments from Rice. Uh sure. and we sort of had this understanding that we came to in um comp forum where uh you know dr lavenda who you know very well said uh Mm -hmm. okay we need to streamline this they're going to borrow our instruments so we need to just come up with a a list of percussion instruments that everybody's going to use and the friday that they voted on this i was with you in denton (laughs) didn't know whoops i get back i find out that the the list of instruments is just ridiculous it was the stupidest list of instruments i'd ever heard um a freshman came up with it i hope he listens to this because he knows (laughs) i complained i complained to him about this every day for weeks um he would be a junior now? Uh, let's see. He would be, no, he's a sophomore. Okay, if you're a sophomore at Rice, a male composer. I'm not going to say, but he you know who you are. But there can only be like probably 3 people. <laughs> you know who you are. And you know I wasn't happy about your <laughs> your instrument choices. He asked for um what did he say? Uh small oblong bells this was on the list and i said what the hell are small oblong bells and he's like oh i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i said well why why are they on the list then 
why am I writing for this non-existent instrument, you know? Oblong bells? Yeah, are you going to go rob uh, the Harry Parch collection? I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really... I don't even... I can't even come up with an instrument that would fit that description. Yeah, I don't really know. Well, they're oblong. And he didn't didn't know what they were either. He just... He didn't seem to know. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, I I made my tip, own list. Pro, pro tip number one: always know that the instrument you are writing for is a real thing. <laughs> it's a real instrument. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, this is why people listen to your podcast to get really. Uh, they they stay for the pro tips, practical yeah. information like this. Yeah. So the. The attempt was to come up with a unified percussion list, and we kind of ended up not having that. So there, there were some percussion set changes um, that had to be made, but uh, for the most part, it worked out. That the reading session went really smoothly. So, um, and they did. You know, they have looked at our pieces. They did a really great, uh, great job. They were, you know, extremely on top of everything. So. Right. Um, the one, I mean, the one thing that kind of, well, it didn't strike me because I think this is a, an aspect of your music, but it just got me thinking that I've kind of completely lost my use for rhythm as a musical identity. Mm. I mean, of course it's a necessity for writing, but it, Mm -hmm. it, I guess it just doesn't hold the same weight as it once did for me. And I th- I think that you have a really good sense of rhythm in terms of creating grooves and maintaining forward direction. So I'm wondering, like, what what role does rhythm play in? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's you know? funny because that Chatterbox is very um, unabashedly, I guess I, I would say, influenced by post-minimal music, sure, yeah. which is not really even my bag um, at all. It's the only piece of my catalog that's even really like this. And b- behind the back has some very rhythmically driving sections. Yeah. But honestly, this phenomenon is very new for me. Yeah, okay. Um, other pieces that I've written... Uh, have you know complex rhythms, but there's not necessarily a sense of pulse. Um, mm. And the piece I'm writing right now is very much that way, where uh, there isn't any sort of there aren't grooves, there aren't there isn't like pulse that you feel. Um, it's very just sort of like the the bar lines are for synchronization, sure. and yeah. um, you know I'm thinking more in terms of gestures and rhythm in terms of writing um you know a series of durations and silences right yeah i mean of of course rhythm is is important for projecting sound through time but at the same time it's it's like you know a rhythm can have a musical identity just like a a melody has a musical identity that right. you you kind of play with throughout the piece i mean i just actually you know come to think of it the the two percussion piece that i'm writing right now mm-hmm. it, it 
it it does have a sense of pulse which i haven't been doing for a while it does mm-hmm. have a sense of groove which i haven't been doing for a while but at the same time all the rhythms were like the stream of rhythm that happens mm-hmm. isn't me like just saying oh i'm gonna write rhythm here you know yeah i purposefully i I, I, I purposely like let gave uh put the rhythm out of my out of my hands and allowed mm-hmm. something else to control it but right i don't know there's i mean there's there's some programmatic intent to this piece isn't there the title chatterbox what does that mean yeah so my my impetus for this piece was uh sort of some some personal circumstances where i had some health issues and um they gave me, I, I was in the hospital, and they gave me a ton of steroids in the hospital. Just, um, you know, just kind of <laughs> loaded me up with with uh, these things. And um, a side effect of if you take too many steroids is that it can cause uh, anxiety. Uh-huh. And so I was experiencing this really intense uh, anxiety and nervousness uh, for months um while i was sort of winding down off of these uh steroids that they had me on and um you know when when i got to rice uh this was in my first semester uh and i had sort of gotten over all this i wanted to write a piece that reflected on that that time that experience and and kind of how it made me feel and the piece that i ended up writing is I'd say a lot uh less um ominous I guess than than the way that yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's feel. ominous but it yeah. definitely has a sense of like on edge right there is that sense of being on edge it, it doesn't it doesn't seem really um total it doesn't really seem negative um, yeah, but uh, I, I I wanted to create this 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 sense of anxiousness and uh, sort of focusing on a couple really basic musical ideas to a very uh, obsessive point. It just mm-hmm. I wanted it to to seem very just um, obsessive. Is the post minimal thing something you think you're gonna keep exploring? Uh, I think that I will probably explore it in a more oblique way. This yeah. was this was somewhat overt in places and uh, passages, especially in the 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 middle sort of meat of the piece where during the fast music, mm-hmm. um, where the marimba is kind of just kind of grooving. Right, where the marimba's more or less grooving. Uh, I'm interested in music that might be considered minimal, that is is not your traditional minimalism. Um, that's not based on repetition? That's a good question, because um, you know, I'm thinking of, of composers like Ingram Marshall, and, and his music uh-huh. does have repetition, but it's very different. Um, there are, you know, European minimalists. You know, I, I would say that Hans Abrahamsen, there's there's a minimalist quality to his music, although 
albeit the rhythms are extremely complex. I don't know if you've ever seen the score to, to Schnee. Mm-hmm. Um, no. But I'll have to send it to you. But uh, the, I mean, the rhythms are extremely complex. Um, but there's this sort of uh, tra- uh, tranquility of, of simplicity that mm. he creates. Um, so I, there's other ways I think that you can incorporate minimalist ideas without it being you Steve know, over, Reich over, or Philip Glass, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, or even David Lang, you know. Yeah. So right. they, those guys have their own thing. Let them do it. You know, come up with your own your own way to use these ideas. Are we going to hear Cadillac Moon? Yes. Is that the recording? That's the recording that we're going to hear. Um, Ensemble Signal did this at June and Buffalo also uh, this past summer. And they were great. Um, but I figured I would use the original first recording for the group that I wrote the piece for. So this will be Cadillac Moon.
The last question that I always ask to composers that are on this podcast is mm -hmm. how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? I started taking piano lessons when I was about nine. And the whole reason I got started, my parents are um, very musical, but they're not like classically trained musicians mm -hmm. and, you know, music isn't what they do. Um, but my mom had always wanted to take piano lessons as a kid and for one reason or another just didn't really get to do it. So she started taking piano lessons as an adult and uh, I got really interested in, you know, I just started messing around with this. We didn't have a piano yet, but we had this keyboard and I was, she would leave the room after she practiced a little bit and I would go and I'd um, pick out the songs that she was learning to play mm -hmm. um, just by ear. And so they just, you know, they decided that maybe I'm the one who should have the lessons. And she, we, I started and she kept on for a while and then eventually she stopped. But um, I, I think from the beginning, I was always more interested in exploring what I could create new rather than reproducing what someone else had already written. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I just absolutely adored, uh, Beethoven and Chopin and Mozart and, you know, all these composers that you learn as a pianist. And, um, I tried to, you know, I learned and, and played as much of their music as I could, but, at the same time, I was always just very interested in the, you know, what I could make. Um, and that, that's sort of how I got into it. But I think that, you know, I, I continued just sort of composing through middle school and high school. And then at the end of high school, by the end of high school, I decided, yeah, I think I want to pursue this as a, you know, a career. Right. Um, I think that for a long time, I didn't really know that it was something you could pursue as a career. And then, and then I figured it out somehow, um, at a certain point that this is something I could, I could actually do. I could, you know, compose, get commissions, teach, um, the idea of teaching really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if there was a big moment. I do remember attending a, a, a piano recital one time and hearing uh, Ravel's Gaspard de la Nuit, and I remember thinking that I, I had never heard anything like that before. Mm -hmm. um, because the music I was mostly listening to was pre pre- that it was not even late romanticism i would say i was listening to like middle romantic period and earlier and i remember i heard that piece and i just thought you know holy yeah. cow there's right i've never exactly. heard anything like yeah. this before so um, yeah the second movement especially le gibet uh just that b flat pedal that 
just <laughs> hangs on through the whole thing and all these harmonies are floating around it and it's just so morose and it um it was you know it opened up a, a door to me i think harmonically a way to, to think that that i hadn't ever really considered before yeah well thank you so much for doing this tim thank you that was very Texas. As they thank say you. down in Texas, thank you. Deep in the heart of Texas. You have a good one. <laughs> that's, that's Sarah's favorite because she's like, you know, have a good one. Whatever whatever you're having, just make you, it be You good. have a good one, okay? You have a good one now. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music, or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>